Well, all right. Good morning. So good to see y'all. Uh, we're in a week seven, of course, of our 10 week series through the 10 commandments. We're calling this series the Decalogue, which literally means the 10 words, which is how it's referred to in uh, the Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament and uh, the Latin Vulgate as well. Uh, it is the literally the 10 words. And as we've seen so far in this series, just by way of review, God set Israel free so that they could live as a free people, no longer enslaved to either Egypt or to themselves. And as God gives them the law, the nation of Israel uh, responds with affirmation. In fact, God tells them years later as they're going into the promised land and I think chapter 30 or chapter 20 of the book of Deuteronomy, God uh, hears the response of the nation of Israel. Like He hears that they respond in the affirmation. Like they respond wholeheartedly trusting the Lord and being obedient to the law. And so God says to Moses there, I have heard what the people said to you. Everything they said was good. And they had said, Lord, whatever the Lord says, we will do. Whatever His law commands, we will obey. And then you see the heart of our Heavenly Father in verse 29. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear Me and to keep all My commands always so that it might go well with them and with their children forever. Understand, this is the heart of God. God is for us. And because He is for us, He gives us His law so that we might live in a way that is truly free. Remember, ultimate freedom is found only under God's authority. I mean, guys, let's be honest. Is your life better or is it worse when you obey God? Is it better or is it worse? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't mean is it easier versus harder. What I mean is the difference between being blessed and being under a curse. Like, is your life better or is it worse when you obey God? Because understand, you don't have to obey God. I mean, you have a choice to make. Like, you don't have to live your life under God's authority, but you will not be able to shield yourself from the consequences of your wicked choices. In other words, you cannot live a cursed life and expect God to bless it. Even though we live amongst a culture where everybody thinks that. And they get angry when God doesn't bless them as they are doing the very things that God promises over and over and over again that those who give themselves to these kind of things will be under a curse. They still cry out for God to bless their disobedience. In Psalm 1, David writes this, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But His delight is in what? It's in the law of the Lord. And in that law, He meditates day and night. 
He is like a tree planted by the streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever He does prospers. But then He says in verse 4, not so the wicked. They are like the chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You see, you don't have to live under God's authority. You don't have to obey His commands. You don't have to serve Him, but you do have to make a choice. You do have to choose. And saying you're not going to choose is a choice in itself. You cannot remain neutral in the great battle for the universe. You can't be Switzerland. It doesn't work that way. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 30, we read this offer from God as the people are about to go into the promised land as they renew their covenant with Him. He says, I have set before you life and death, prosperity and destruction, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Like God is saying, this is bigger than you. This is about the generations to come. This is about your children and your grandchildren. Your irresponsibility will ultimately become their responsibility. Choose today whom you will serve. Remember, the ten words from God are for our protection. They're for our provision. And they all point to a promise. A promise of the One who came to fulfill the law on our behalf. We need to remember all of that this morning as we look at the seventh commandment, which is incredibly unpopular. Incredibly. This command is not a popular command. There are some that are. I mean, come on. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? So God, you say that everybody else is going to work on on the Sabbath, but I just get to rest and you're going to provide for me? Thumbs up. Like, I love that command. Like, all parents love honor your father and your mother, but there are so many in our culture who are aligned against the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. It's really straightforward. It's really simple to understand. It's one of those commands, once again, that just reading it explains it. You don't need a sermon, but I'm going to give you one anyway, right? Like we look at this command and we get this command. If you're married, you appreciate this command. And yet, if we could drop one of the Ten Commandments, our culture would probably vote for number seven. In fact, in 1631, there was a printing of the King James Bible. About a thousand Bibles were printed and it ultimately became known as... In a mis- as a misprint and as the wicked Bible or the sinner's Bible because it misprinted this verse to say, thou shalt commit adultery. It was really popular. It was popular in its day. It's popular in our day. Like we live in a culture today that is at war with the seventh commandment. 
But understand, this is not a uniquely 21st century problem. It has always been this way. When God gives a good gift, an especially beautiful and glorious gift, a gift of intimacy and oneness in marriage and in marital sex, believe me, the enemy is going to be on the attack. In fact, Kevin DeYoung puts it this way, God's best gifts are the ones most apt to be twisted and perverted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Guys, I don't have to really even explain that. Y'all know that's true, right? Like we live in a culture that is insane about sex. They've gone so overboard in this issue. If you don't believe me, go see the new movie, The Sound of Freedom. And see what happens when people cast off all restraint and are going to satisfy their sexual appetites in any way they want. That's what happens. I mean, this is so obvious to anyone. Like we see it all around us. We are assaulted at every turn. It's overwhelming. You got to wonder, like moms and dads, come on. Could you imagine? Like, could you imagine being 14 today? I'm so glad I'm an old man. Like, I can't imagine being 14 years old in the school system today with the, the direction of the culture. Like, you got to wonder, like, is there any hope? Is there any way to stand when everything and everyone is falling all around you? How can you resist? Like we're given a great, a couple of great examples, by the way, in scripture of young men who resisted this very sin, resisted idolatry and immorality in a pagan culture with zero accountability in the life of Joseph and in the life of Daniel. So is there any hope? Well, that's the question asked and answered by the psalmist in Psalm 119 when he writes, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Guys, how can we keep our way pure? By just knowing. Like you got to know that God knows more than you know specifically about this issue. That God made you. That God knows what you need. And that you just need to trust Him. You need to trust your Heavenly Father. God has both the answer to all of our questions and the resources to match our resolve that we might resist the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so this morning, I just want to cover four questions related to the seventh commandment that you shall not commit adultery. And here are the four questions. Why does God even care? You got to ask that question because our culture asks it all the time. Why would God care what I do in my bedroom? Like He's got a universe to run. Right? Like climate change and nations starving and wars and famines, everything else. Like why does He care about something that seems so minor. And second question is, what does this command actually forbid? 
And then the next question would be, how can I obey this command? And then finally, the last question is, is there any hope? Is there any hope for people who've already violated this command? Is there any hope for the sexually unfaithful, for adulterers? And so, first question, why does God care? Well, He cares because this command, the seventh word, was given by our Heavenly Father for our protection and for our provision. Now remember, you don't have to live under the, father, the Father's authority. You can do whatever you want, but you won't be able to shield yourself from the natural and supernatural consequences of your choices. You cannot live a cursed life and expect blessing. You cannot give in to your basest desires and not expect to be enslaved to sin. You cannot feast your appetites without restraint and chase after how you feel in that moment and fill yourself up with that kind of stuff and not be enslaved to sin. Whatever rules our hearts controls our lives. We know that's true. Whatever rules our hearts will control our actions. You cannot indulge your desires outside of the context that God has set for them and expect it to go well for you. In fact, in Psalm, I'm sorry, in Proverbs chapter 6, we read these words Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can he? No. Unless he's wearing flame retardant pants, right? Like he's wearing a robe. This is written about a thousand years before the birth of Christ. He's wearing a wool robe. Yes, he's going to get burned. It's going to hurt. And then he says, can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? And then he says, so is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. A man who commits adultery lacks judgment. And here's this, whoever does so destroys himself. When your life falls apart, when you lose your marriage, you lose your family, you lose your friends, you lose your reputation, know that you chose this. This was the choice you made in that moment. In fact, he's not subtle at all. Can a man scoop fire into his lap? That's not subtle. And, it, and not be burned. So why does God even care what goes on in my bedroom? You might say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm only hurting myself, so what does it matter? To which God would say, exactly. You're hurting yourself. You're destroying yourself. You're robbing yourself of a future and a hope. And I don't want you to hurt yourself that way. I mean, what would any loving father say to someone in that moment? But once again, we're in a culture that is out of control sexually. And whenever sex is separated from the covenant of marriage, like this is what God intends. One man married to one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. Like that is the clear message of all of Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament. And so whenever sex is separated from the covenant of marriage, it loses its true purpose and its true joy. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. 
He says, the Christian idea of marriage is based on Christ's words that a man and wife are to be regarded as a single organism. The two become one flesh. The male and the female were made to be combined together in pairs, not simply on a sexual level, but totally combined. The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all the other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. And so he concludes that the Christian attitude does not mean that there is anything wrong about sexual pleasure any more than there's anything wrong about the pleasure of eating a good meal. It means that you must not isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasures of taste without swallowing and digesting by chewing things and spitting them out on the ground. And guys, do we not live in a culture when it comes to sexuality, where it's just cho- we're just chewing it up and spitting it on the ground. Whenever you try to isolate the pleasures of sex, you always end up harming yourself and harming others and spitting it on the ground. Like, what would any loving father do about that? God's law is for your protection and it's for your provision. Second, what does this command actually forbid? I've already told you, it's one that you don't need a sermon on. It's just right there. You shall not commit adultery. Adultery is marital infidelity. It's breaking of your vow to your spouse of complete sexual faithfulness. It forbids any activity, any sexual activity that violates the covenant of marriage. There are no exceptions. There are no loopholes. At the core, the seventh command teaches us to honor our marriage. Honor marriage. The seventh word requires husbands and wives to nurture their love for one another emotionally, spiritually, and sexually. I mean, I think it's a great day to begin announcing re-engage in the fall. Like what a perfect perfect application of this sermon. I would encourage y'all when you have a chance to sign up for that. Now, at this point, if, if you're single here, you have to be thinking, okay, well, I'm single, I'm not married, or I'm divorced, I'm not married, and so obviously this does not apply to me, right? Well, in a sense, you're right. I mean, you're very right. However, according to the full witness of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the only sex that is ever permitted by God is within the marriage covenant between one man and one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. Anything else, and you can use your imagination, but I caution you, don't use it too much. Right? You can use your imagination. Anything else is outside of the bounds that God has permitted and ordained for all people in all places at all times. Sexual sin, in fact, is the number two sin mentioned in the Old Testament. It's the number one sin by volume mentioned in the New Testament. And what is forbidden here is anything and everything 
that would lead to sexual unfaithfulness. In fact, Jesus explained it this way in His Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 when He says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Like we've all heard that. That's His sermon. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If you were feeling good about your faithfulness and you read that, read those words, you have to feel like, oops, like maybe I'm not that faithful. Maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was. Like if you take the words of Jesus seriously, you should feel a little bit uncomfortable. That Jesus says, listen, it's not just flesh on flesh, skin on skin. It's not just the act of adultery. It's having an adulterous heart. And so you might think, man, this standard is crazy. It's impossible. Like who in the world would ever live up to that? But can I just caution you before you dismiss the standard that Jesus has set for us? Answer me this. Is your life really better because you have indulged your lust? Or is it worse? Is it better or is it worse? Right? Be honest. Is your marriage better because you have indulged your lust, or is it worse? Is your intimacy, has your intimacy been improved and deepened with your spouse, or has it been destroyed? The thought that the way you prepare for your honeymoon night is you have a lot of sex with a bunch of different people, because then you'll know exactly what you need to bring to the table, or you need to view a lot of pornography, that is in no way the way you prepare for your honeymoon night. You prepare for your honeymoon night by guarding your heart above all else because everything flows from that. Jim Wilkin explains it this way. She writes, Lust lies at the root of adultery. Lust itself is an act of contempt hear that lust itself is an act of contempt reducing someone to a source of sexual gratification and nothing more if the sixth command thou shalt not kill prohibitive regarding our neighbor as expendable the seventh command pro prohibits regarding our neighbor as consumable we do not consume those we love. We treasure and protect them as image bearers of God. Thus, the root sin of adultery chooses a person it is willing to treat with contempt. Lust devalues its object so that the act of adultery becomes the next logical step. Jesus is not equating adultery with lust. He shows how one results from the other. A rancid seed yielding rotten fruit. And He warns us to root it out. So how do we do that? How do we obey this command? Well, Jesus goes on to tell us in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Which is not what I would have said if this was my sermon. I would have said something like, hey, if your eye causes you to sin, uh, stop it. Close it. <laughs> right? Stop looking at that. Whatever. It's, just don't do it anymore. But Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, 
Tear it out and throw it away, for it would be better to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And then he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, well, uh, don't let it. Do Stop whatever you're doing. No. Cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Which at this point, you got to be thinking, Bobby, please tell me that this is just a figure of speech. Like, am I supposed to obey this literally? Well, Jesus, of course, is using hyperbole here to make a point. It's the use of exaggeration as a rhetorical advice to evoke some strong emotion and to create a strong impression. Like he's trying to grab our attention. He's trying to say, this is so serious. It could cost you your soul. And what would you give in exchange for your soul? <coughs> Jesus wants us to ask ourselves, what's worth losing an eye over? What's worth losing a hand over? I mean, especially married men, in light of what you stand the chance of really losing with adultery, married women, the chance of losing your marriage, losing your children, losing your home, your reputation, your future, it's just an arm. It's just an eye. I mean, isn't it true that there are certain things that you tend to hold on to that consistently lead you down the wrong path and end up costing you greatly? I mean, every single time because you won't let go of them. You have to get to a point where you think, man, I keep doing the same thing and it trips me up every single time. I need to do something radical. I need to take a radical step and cut myself off from this thing before it costs me my marriage, my family, my purity, my reputation, my freedom. Guys, please hear this if you don't hear anything else. If you're, a, if you're afraid of Christ taking control of your life, just imagine sin taking control of your life. I mean, if you think, man, the idea that I would yield my life to Jesus and that He would be the one to call the shots about my life and my future and my hope and my dreams and my sexuality and everything else, I mean, that's really scary. Well, imagine sin taking control of your life. Imagine the enemy taking control of your life. As the man who discipled me, Charles Ellis, used to tell me all the time, sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you so much more than you want to pay. See, on the surface, this statement by Jesus seems extreme. It's shocking. It grips your attention. It's radical. But the more you think about it, you begin to think, yeah, you know what? That actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, especially in light of some of your greatest regrets. Maybe you would even think, man, I would give my right arm if I could just have that choice back. If I didn't just go, if I didn't just, if I just said no to that invitation to that party from that girl, if I, I, I'd give anything. I'd give my right arm to have that choice back. I'd give my right eye to have that 
choice back. Well, unless you want to trump your greatest regret with an even greater regret, then there's some things you need to cut out of your life and some things you need to cut yourself off from. Jesus is saying desperate times call for desperate measures. Or as John Owen put it, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Do you know that? Like you get that, right? Christians, you, you get that sin is not a kitten that you can play with. Sometimes we treat sin like this little pet kitten that's never going to grow into a roaring lion that seeks to devour us. I'm going to keep it secret. I'm going to keep it safe. It's not going to consume me. It's like Gollum's ring. And it takes your very soul. So what would you give your right arm for? Would you give your right arm to be faithful? Sexually faithful to your wife or to your husband? Well, what would your right arm in that scenario represent? Whatever it represents, cut it off. And cut it out of your life. Whatever rules our hearts controls our lives. That's how it works. And that's why the writer of Proverbs says, guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. Whatever rules our hearts controls our lives. So whatever is tripping you up, cut it off and cut it out of your life. We need to cultivate a holy repulsion to sin. We need to stop thinking of it as our friend or as benign or as weaker than we are. We need to clue into the fact that the enemy wants to steal and kill and destroy. Married people in this room, Satan wants you to cheat on your spouse. He wants you to lose your kids' respect. He wants to take everything from you. And if you don't get that, you're living like a fool. We need to understand that. We need to cultivate a holy repulsion to sin and we need to cultivate new affections for Christ and for righteousness. The Puritan Thomas Chalmer wrote a book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. He says the way we battle sin isn't simply by keeping it at arm's length or fleeing from it. It's cultivating new desires for the things of Christ. Falling so deeply in love with Jesus. Enjoying the feast at our Father's table so much that all the other delicacies seem like junk food. In fact, one Puritan pastor, Thomas Brooks, responded to that book by praying this prayer, O oh God, put my tongue out of taste for the bait of the devil. And so finally, is there hope for those who've broken this command? Is there hope for adulterers? Can I just say, if there's not hope for adulterers, there's no hope for any of us. If there, is, if there is a category of sin that is beyond the grace of God, then all of us are without hope. Of course, there's hope for adulterers. Like remember the ten words point to a promise. That promise is a person. That person is Jesus. Like on the cross, the Father cut off His Son's life so that you could be engrafted into His family.
And so the way we start is we repent of our sins. We call them, we confess and call them what God calls them and we return to Him. If it's the first time trusting in Christ and believing the Gospel that Christ on the cross became your sin, then call out to Him and says, Lord, say, Lord Jesus, I believe this. I know that You died for me. That You died for this sin. Please be the Savior and Lord of my life. If you're already a believer, call that sin what it is. And plead the blood of Christ over it. And let Him cleanse you again. I love Zechariah 3, verses 1-4, through and I'll close with this. In Zechariah 3, the prophet is given a vision of the throne room of God. And the high priest of the day, a guy named Joshua, is standing there before the throne of God. It says, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him, which is what Satan always does. He lures us to the edge and when we fall over, he tells us how stupid we are. Satan was standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. And then he says this, Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Guys, we ought to all circle that in our Bibles. Because that's you. And that's me. We're just burning sticks snatched from the fire of God's judgment. That's who we are. And so God's saying to Satan, listen, you think you can accuse him? I've redeemed him. I've snatched him out of the fire. You can't do anything to him. And he goes on to say, now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. Guys, that's foreshadowing what only Christ could accomplish on the cross. I want to pray for us and I'm so thankful that we get to follow up a heavy sermon about that brings a lot of guilt and shame to people in this room. Sexually broken. Sexually addicted. People who've struggled with this sin and battled this that we can end this message by bringing, coming to the table of communion and remembering what Jesus did to cover our sin and to free us from its dominion. Let's pray. So let this cup of blessing which we bless be a participation in the blood of Christ. And let this bread which we break be a participation in the body of Christ. And enable us to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Let Christ's flesh be real food to us. And let His blood be real drink. And enable us by faith so to eat His flesh and drink His blood that He may dwell in us and we in Him that we may live through Him forever. Enable us now to take this cup of salvation and to call upon the name of the Lord. Lord Jesus, we call upon You now.
God, I asked for our church family here that as they take seriously your word, Lord, that they would come to you with all guilt and all shame. And they, they would remember that you are not the one who accuses. That there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But instead, you take off their dirty garments and you dress them in that white, pure robe. Thank you because of the cross that that is possible. Bless these elements now. May they be true food and true drink for us. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.